0: I'll invite you to turn, please, to James chapter 2. Just have that open, because that is going to be our text. We'll be looking specifically at verses 14 through 26. And in this passage, we come to one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture, a passage that... Is so sharply worded and stark in its declarations that it has perplexed even great men like Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon. Did you know that Spurgeon, while he chastised Luther for calling James an epistle of straw, and, and did did not agree with him in that respect, Spurgeon actually said, "If if I had to choose to be without James or Romans, or, pardon me, yeah, James or Romans." Or without either James or Paul, he would choose Paul and leave James simply because the apostle Paul focuses more consistently on Christ, and his aim is more deliberately to declare the gospel. But this is part. James is part of the Lord's um, word; it is inspired by God as much as any other. And these difficult things in here—they have a purpose. In fact, if we only had the passage of James to go on in defining the nature of saving faith, Christianity would be a radically different religion. But praise God, we have not only this one passage, but an entire volume, subscribed by 40 authors over some 1,500 years, each section triumphantly singing its part in the chorus that is called Justification by Faith. This afternoon, we will see and see clearly that far from... Being out of harmony with this chorus, James 2, 14-26 introduces counterpoint notes that add balance and nuance and dynamic to an already magnificent declaration of divine grace. Please turn now and we'll look at James 2, uh, 14-26 and um, just follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Faith apart from works is dead. Now, if you know the gospel, you can see that if we only had that, we would have a very different understanding of the Christian faith. We would have you know, perhaps be completely focused on works and not really understanding the wonder, the beauty of grace. Now, but we're going to uh, to see how this all works together for God's glory. Now, if we're going to make any theological sense. Uh, Bold declarations in this passage, such as verse 17, where it says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We are going to have to be very clear as to the nature of faith that these verses address. Are we talking about the faith proclaimed in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Or Romans 11, 6, where, we're, where we read, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I believe the best way to read this passage and to keep it intact is, and to keep intact its necessary place in the whole canon of Scripture is is not to see works as a necessary addition to saving faith, but to look at saving faith as a different kind of faith altogether than a man-centered faith. God-given, saving faith is active in its very nature. So today we are going to examine the contrast between two kinds of faith. Dead, solitary faith, and dynamic saving faith. The verses that I've already highlighted in our passage clearly show us what dead, solitary faith looks like. It is quite simply faith that is not accompanied by works. What good is it if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? The big question is, can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. Dead, solitary faith is a faith of empty profession. The profession of faith, that is the speaking of adherence to faith that is not accompanied by works, can be compared to a facade of a western village in a Hollywood movie. From the perspective of the camera, the building looks authentic and three-dimensional, but if if you were to enter one of the buildings, you would find that they are not buildings at all. They are one-dimensional deceptions designed to manipulate people's senses, helping them to suspend disbelief and immerse themselves in a story that never has and never could happen. This facade is expressed in the form of words, as in verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? You see, it's words without substance. It's easy to sound spiritual, to say the right things, to impress the ears of those around us. It's easy to say, I'll pray for you, brother, and then walk away and forget we ever said it. It's easy to say, let us know if there is anything that we can do with no intention of ever doing anything. Now, I'm quite sure that if my own life is anything like yours, we have all said and thought similar things. Does this mean necessarily that our faith is dead? I don't believe so. But I do believe that faith consisting only of profession and completely lacking action is a dead faith. It is a solitary faith, not a saving faith. As James so emphatically states... So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or as the King James says, faith without works is dead, being alone, solitary faith. The mistake we make as Christians is to see saving faith as exclusive of works, separate from works, standing alone. The old Reformed axiom shatters this misconception. It goes like this, we are saved by faith alone But faith that saves is never alone. Just think about that for a minute. We are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. In other words, dynamic saving faith does not live across the street from works. One cannot be saved and go through life justified, waving at the neighbor across the street, but never actually actually crossing paths with it. Faith and works live happily together under the same roof. Grace. Grace. As James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or to put it positively, faith that has works is alive. Dynamic, saving faith does not pursue works. It does not incorporate works. It has works. It produces works as a root produces shoots, and as shoots produce fruit. We tend to get caught in a false dichotomy when we talk about faith and works. In verse 18, James sums up that dichotomy, and he says, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. That's the way we think. That's why people. That's what the way people tend to think, this or that, faith or works. Professing believers tend to choose sides. Not realizing that there need not be a battle if we understand the nature of saving faith. Paul and James can be perfectly reconciled if we understand that both apostles embrace justification by faith. And that both men regard that faith, that faith is a gift of God, full of potential and life, and that cannot by its very nature remain dormant. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the apostle talks about the gift of saving faith. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. Now, nowhere does James ever deny the necessity of faith or the fact that it is a gift of God. Nowhere does James say that we must work for faith or that faith itself is a work neither James nor Paul confuse faith and works. And if we read on in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that passage from Paul I just read, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, both Paul and James proclaim dynamic, saving faith. Faith given by God and empowered by God to carry out the works of God which God himself prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is why James can write, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's saying that faith without works will be revealed for the facade, for the sham that it is. Well, faith that produces works will give clear evidence that it is indeed the gift of God, not something that is earned and that and that the very end evidence that it is from God is the work that it produces. In verse 19, James further illustrates the distinction between dead faith and dynamic faith by talking about, of all things, the faith of demons. He writes, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe... They are orthodox in their theology. They believe that God is one, in his per- that he is perfectly one in his essence, though three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You won't find any demon arguing unless he's trying to deceive someone else, but arguing from the demon's own heart. They all know that God is a perfectly uh, perfect union and triune. They know that. They believe that. They believe that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. They believe that His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead actually succeed in making repentant sinners right with God. They believe in the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. They believe every aspect of the law and every aspect of the gospel, and yet they shudder, they tremble, because they know that they have offended the God whom they fear, And they know that Christ's death and resurrection were not for them, but for men. The demons that fell, the angels that fell, have no hope of redemption. And they long to look, and they they try to understand, and they, they, they are overwhelmed by the grace that God has shown to his creatures, the human race, that God would redeem out of every tribe and nation a people for himself, though they had rebelled against him, just as the demons had. You can profess, confess, and even teach orthodox truth from the word of God. But if your life is characterized by works of darkness rather than works of righteousness, you are no more saved than demons. Profession of faith is not the same as possession of it. True faith involves not only confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, but also believing in the heart, in the very essence of your being, that God has raised him from the dead. Heart belief changes behavior. When Jesus saves people, he gives them new hearts, hearts that seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Demons and false converts converts, seek only their own interests. Redeemed hearts, saved hearts, regenerate hearts, seek the interest of God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. The person who says they have faith, while well, hiding beneath the umbrella of grace, resisting the royal law that we read about or we talked about last week, and producing no fruits in keeping with repentance, is in danger of the same judgment intended for the devil and his angels. Mere intellectual acceptance and superficial official profession of the gospel can no more save a man than striving to achieve God's acceptance by his own works. Salvation is a work of God which results in the works of God. I'm going to repeat that because I think it's, it sums up very, something very important. Salvation is a work of God which results in the works of God being carried out in the believer. So far, James has made some very strong claims. And now he turns his attention to defending these claims by use of specific examples from the Old Testament. He says in verse 20, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes on to employ the very same example that Paul uses in Romans and Galatians when arguing for justification by faith, the example of Abraham. He says in, um, in verse 21 here, Was not Abraham, your father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if Abraham was justified by works and people in general are justified by works and not by faith alone it is hard to fathom how the apostle paul under the same inspiration of the same holy spirit could write in galatians yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in jesus christ so we also have believed in christ jesus in order to be justified by faith and christ and not faith in christ and not the works of the law Because by works of the law will no one be justified. I hope you go back online and you listen to this later on, because there's a lot to think about here. But to resolve this apparent contradiction, we need only to understand that James and Paul are both looking at the same faith in this context. They're looking at saving faith from opposite sides of a person's conversion. James is focused on the evidence of saving faith in believers who are motivated and po- empowered to do good works. While Paul is focusing on the primary faith in the primary primacy of faith in justifying a lost sinner. James does not deny that faith justifies. Rather, he defines justifying faith as faith that actually produces work, that produces uh, by by works we're not talking just about works of charity we're talking about worship genuine worship we're talking about every everything that brings glory to God in the life of the believer the works he speaks of do not in themselves justify it. but instead faith is active along with works and is completed by works the evidence of works proves that the faith is genuine and not a mere facade but wait now isn't it wrong to think that faith is completed by works? Does that does that contradict the theology that we understand? Isn't that legalism? Doesn't it take away from grace? Not according to the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1:2 1, through 7. Now if you'd like you can turn to this, it's a bit longer passage, and it's important. Philippians chapter 1 verses 2 through 7. We give thanks God to God for all pardon me. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. Now listen closely. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice the phrases that are used. Your work of faith your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. There is no denying that the graces or gifts of faith and love and hope produce activity in the believer. Work, labor, and steadfastness, these all involve some effort and focus and intention on the part of believers. As we read a little further, we see that Paul and his companions actually say. That they know God has chosen the Thessalonians. Not on the basis of their confession of faith alone. Okay, how do they know? How can they say, we know you're chosen. How can they say this? But but because in response to the powerful gospel. They actually become imitators of the apostles and of the Lord. That's how they can have confidence. That's how they can say, we know you have faith. Because we see it's results, we see its work in your life. The Thessalonians received the life-giving word and that word produced faith. And that faith, despite much affliction, enabled the Thessalonians to become an example to all the believers, including us. Friends, this is a dy- this dynamic saving faith manifest in the works of true believers. That's what it is. It is exactly the faith that James addresses in chapter 2 of this letter. Paul and James are not in conflict. Now in order to further illustrate the necessity of this kind of faith, James draws on another testament, another Old Testament example, Rahab, the prostitute of all things. Did you know that Rahab is also listed in the lineage, the human lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amazing, isn't it, And it says here in verse 25, "In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In this story, Rahab believed that God was with Israel and the messengers that came to her. She knew that he was the only true God. She also feared the Lord. Listen to what she said to the messengers from Joshua 2, 10 and 11. all of this was a profession of faith. But it was her selfless and faithful action of hiding the men from the authorities that gave evidence of her faith. A mere passive acceptance of these messengers without the resulting action would have resulted not only in her own destruction, but also calamity for the whole of Israel. Can you imagine the lineage of Messiah? if God had not given this woman faith, and if that faith had not been genuine faith. Do you see how she fled in faith to the mercy of God? She knew that God was judge. She knew that God was a holy God, and that all of earth was under His sovereignty. And yet, rather than running from Him, and trying to escape, she chose to stand with him and run to him and plead his mercy and God saw that that was saving faith this is a picture of dynamic saving faith Rahab is even included by the writer of Hebrews in the faith hall of fame it's not called the works hall of fame it's called the faith hall of fame I mean that's a human title that's put on it but it fits She is identified there along with many others, including Abraham, who are included because of their faith. James, rather than diminishing the importance of that faith, actually shows what it looks like in practice. James closes this section with an analogy. He says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you were to find a body washed up on a beach the first thing you would do would be to look for signs of life. Is there a pulse? Is there breath? Is there movement? And if you found none of these signs, but the body was still warm, you might try to resuscitate it by breathing into its lungs and compressing its chest. My friends, the true gospel breathes life into a corpse that has no life in itself. The true gospel brings life into a corpse that is dry bones, like in in the valley, uh, in, in a vision of Ezekiel, where they're, how dry, How are these bones dry? Oh, yes, they're very dry. We're not talking about a recently temporary expired person who can be resuscitated. We're talking about someone who is dead in trespasses and sins, who cannot even seek after God. True gospel breathes life into this corpse that has no life in itself. Its power is irresistible and its effects are undeniable. Christ Jesus died and rose from the grave to bring dead sinners to life. Through him, repentance and faith are granted when spiritually dead hearts are raised to life, when dead spiritual lungs are filled with the very breath of life, the Spirit of God. Perhaps even today you have discovered that you are spiritually dead. That your faith is not the faith that comes from God, but faith that originates in you. If you see this today, Christ calls you to repent and believe that he has done what you could never do. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of holy God. He has died in the place of sinners and was raised up to life in order to justify all who come to God through him. When the good shepherd calls, according to the Gospel of John, his sheep know his voice, his sheep hear his voice, and his sheep come to him. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that Lazarus had been dead in that tomb four days, knowing by this time he smelled rotten, that there was no life in him, he didn't, he didn't uh, go up to the tomb, roll away the stone and say, Lazarus, do you think you could find it in your heart to believe that I can raise it from the dead? Lazarus had no ability. Lazarus had no inclination. Lazarus was dead. But what did Jesus do? He stood outside the tomb. And he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And his very word brought to life that dead man. And that is a picture of salvation. That is a picture of what the gospel does. When... The sheep, and Jesus knows his sheep. His sheep know them. And those sheep won't even know their sheep until they hear the voice. And then they'll come. It's, the the gospel is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes. So Jesus is calling. He's calling even now through this message. He's calling. Do you hear his voice? voice come to him come forth this is saving dynamic faith